For centuries, mental disorder was considered to be due to possession by devils, and sick people were chained in foul dungeons from which few escaped alive. Guards were brutal, and treatment was non-existent. Pennell, about 150 years ago, struck off those chains and began the medical treatment of the insane. Only in the past 20 years, however, have physical methods been developed for treatment of the mentally ill. Enthusiasm for artificially induced convulsions intensified, and it was only a matter of time before electricity was exploited. He came home for lunch, as white as a sheet, and said, today I saw something terrible. And he described the first electric shock treatment, and he ended with, I never want to see this again. And then I don't know how many thousands of shock treatments he gave. Well, Doctor, just how well does this therapy work? Many patients have been returned to their homes and jobs who might still be here if it were not for this helpful form of treatment. This patient is prepared for electric shock therapy, which is often very effective in helping to bring mentally troubled patients back to normal. Many of these patients can be further benefited by psychosurgery. Many types of operation for the relief of mental disorder have since been devised, the simplest of which is transorbital lobotomy. This operation can be performed by the psychiatrist himself. The operation can be done under any general anesthetic, but electroshock is preferred because of its familiarity to the psychiatrist. Transorbital lobotomy is performed during the stage of post-convulsive coma. The electrodes are applied and the first shock is given. The operator lifts the upper eyelid, inserts the leucotome into the conjunctival sac, and aims it parallel with the bony ridge of the nose. He drives the point through the orbital plate and at a depth of five centimeters swings the handle far laterally. What do you think you are, for Christ's sake? Crazy or something? Mm-hmm. Well, you're not. <laughs> you're not. You're no crazier than the average asshole out walking around on the streets, and that's it. Jesus Christ, I can't even believe it. It doesn't. Have you heard the story of... And written on the wall... And everyone blood. has the different stories of, oh, this happened to my brother, this happened to my brother. telling you stories of the old... There was this girl. It was back when we were little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American lore. A story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello and welcome to the Just A Story podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week, we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again, what our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans. Welcome back, all you fantastic listeners, for another mind-tingling episode. Do minds tingle? I thought spines tingled. Things tingle. I thought minds bent. Organs tingle. Is that your medical opinion? Yes. Fantastic. So we're off to a rollicking good start. Let's just take a moment and have our weekly affirmation, because I believe after you made it through last week's episode, you deserve it. You do. You're strong enough and good enough and brave enough that you can conquer this entire world. And don't you dare let anyone tell you that you can't do it. Climb every mountain. It's all in you. After you're done climbing that mountain, you can connect with us on social media at Just a Story Pod on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Also check out our website at JustAStoryPod.com where you'll have access to all of our sources, images, and links to things like our merch store with fantastic merchandise by Samantha, dear. 
That's me. I do that. That's what I do. I make things, draw stuff, and tell stories. It's not so bad. It's not so bad. I also keep tiny humans alive. Uh, (laughs) You do good, but not as much fun. (laughs) Also, you can find links to our Patreon page, which is a great way to help support the show, get access to mini episodes and other fun stuff. And also, don't forget that you can call the Urban Legend Hotline. The Urban Legend Hotline, you say? You can do that by dialing 512-222-3375. And you can call and leave us your favorite urban legend, tell us a joke, a scary story, or just, you know, talk about your mom for a little while if you need to get some Freud on. So, Sam. So, Jake. Back to the story at hand. Oh, goodness, the story at hand. So, we left the history of lunatics and asylums and the depraved things we used to do right around world war ii right when the boys were coming back and we were gonna fix them and we start to see those changes and how we are viewing the mentally ill how we view mental illness in itself and different ways that we treat it and so i think a great story to start off this week's episode with would be even a little later in time And it is by one Ken Casey. I know that guy. We've talked about him before on our LSD episode way, way back in the day. Right. And other than being very famous for taking a lot of LSD, he also wrote One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which was published in 1962. So he was not just famous for being famous. He was not. He was no Kim Kardashian is what you're telling me. If he had an Instagram, it would have been amazing. <laughs> oh, now I, need, now I see a project I need to do. I've been psychedelic gifts everywhere. So this is a novel that he wrote based on his time working in an insane asylum. So he was an employee, not a patient. Correct. Key distinction. He was on the graveyard shift and he would often sit around talking with them. The patients. Yes. Okay. Now, this novel is narrated by Chief Bromden, who's this gigantic but docile half-Native American that has been institutionalized for a long time. And it's told from his point of view. Mm-hmm. And he is kind of half-catatonic, deaf, and mute. So, if one were to sit around thinking about who the most reliable narrator could possibly be for any story, you would say the opposite of all those things. <laughs> True. And so you have a super unreliable narrator, which makes it so much fun to read. And his hallucinations and delusions come into play throughout the novel. But it tells about Randall Patrick McMurphy, who is kind of a con man who decides that in order to get out of the work form, he is going to plead insanity and get put in a cush mental institution. How's that work out for him? Well, let's see. So Bromden says, I've been silent so long now. It's going to roar out of me like floodwaters. And you think the guy telling this is ranting and raving? My God, you think this is too horrible to have really happened. This is too awful to be the truth. But please, it's still hard for me to have a clear mind thinking on it. But it's the truth, even if it didn't happen. You just blew my mind. That is such a walloping late 60s power punch of crazy. It's fantastic. And the whole book is like this. It's great. But so you have your main character... McMurphy, and he's butting heads with the infamous Nurse Ratchet. Oh, Nurse Ratchet. We could write several books on her. People have. People have. Yes, we are going to gloss over the demasculization, castration, 
themes in the book for this episode. Darn it. <laughs> Sorry, guys. But he keeps butting heads with her. And this is an obvious conflict, right? Mm-hmm. Like a literal man versus man, kind of man versus woman, whatever, conflict. But it gets a little metaphorical, a little Foucault-y, if little you 60s. will. A little 60s, where it's a damn the man, down with the man. Man's trying to keep you down. Exactly. He's the free-spirited mind, and the man's just trying to control him. Literally. Literally. Sedate him. Make him be quiet. He's talking to all of these patients and, and finding out their stories, and he's just disturbed to find out how much control she has over them. He starts to try to encourage them to stand up for themselves. Does things like having them vote to watch the World Series. He even takes them on a, on a deep sea fishing trip. So they channel their, their inner Ernest Hemingways. In one scene, he even claims that he can lift this hydrotherapy control panel in the bath. And Casey writes, his whole body shakes with the strain as he tries to lift something he knows he can't lift. Something everybody knows he can't lift. But for just a second, when we hear the cement grind at our feet, we think, by golly, he might do it. But he isn't able to. And after failing, as he walks away, he says, well, at least I tried. Oh, the thinly veiled metaphors in this book. I mean, trying to change the very structures that we inhabit. And the walls we've built for ourselves to no avail before an audience that, despite knowing better, still has faith in the one charismatic figure. Right? (laughs) Yeah. I see what you did there. So after defending one of the patients from the other staff, Chief and McMurphy are punished by being sent for electroshock therapy. Oh. Now, earlier in the story, he's warned of the shock shop. And if he keeps causing disturbances, that he'd be sent there. The shock shop, Mr. McMurphy, is jargon for the EST machine, the electroshock therapy, a device that might be said to do the work of the sleeping pill, the electric chair, and the torture rack. It's a clever little procedure. Simple, quick, nearly painless. It happens so fast, but no one ever wants another one. Ever. What's the thing to do? You're strapped to a table, shaped ironically like a cross, with a crown of electric sparks in place of thorns. You're touched on each side of the head with wires. Zap! Five cents worth of electricity through the brain and your jointly administered therapy and a punishment for your hostile go-to-hell behavior. On top of being put out of everyone's way for six hours to three days, depending on the individual, even when you regain consciousness, you are in state of disorientation for days. You're unable to think coherently. You can't recall things. Enough of these treatments and a man could turn out like Mr. Ellis you see over there against the wall. A drooling, pants-sweating idiot at 35. Or turn into a mindless organism that eats and eliminates and yells, Fuck the wife! Like Ruckley. Or look at Chief Bloom, clutching to his namesake there beside you. He says, What the hell for? So why, the patient's good, of course. Everything's done here is for the patient's good. You may sometimes get the impression, having lived only on our ward... That the hospital is a vast, efficient mechanism that would function quite well if the patient were not imposed on it. But that's not true. EST isn't always used for punitive measures. Oh, well, not always used for punitive measures. That's good. That's basically the criteria for a nice medical device. If it can be advantageously employed for something other than punishing patients. 51%. That's all we need. That's it. And the reason we're talking about this is this imagery of 
electroshock therapy and insane asylums from one flew of the cuckoo's nest is pretty much what we think of when we think of it. Even right. if you don't know it's what you're thinking of, it's what influenced all of the other imagery after. That the- sort of mad scientist on the loose with patients at their disposal kind of idea that's perpetrated left and right in fiction and just in mass media generally. No, definitely. And so the description of the therapy, twists some dials and the machine trembles, two robot arms pick up soldering irons and hunch down on him. He gives me the wink and speaks to me, muffled, tells me something, says something to me around that rubber hose, just as those irons get close enough to the silver on his temples. Light arcs across, stiffens him, bridges him up off the table till nothing is down, but his wrists and ankles and out around that crimped black rubber hose a sound like he's frosted over completely with sparks are there really sparks no okay <laughs> now mcmurphy really gets on ratchet's bad side because he still continues to act the way that he has been sticking it to the man mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and he decides that on the weekend whenever it's just like the little skeleton crew he bribes the guard and gets a few prostitutes to come in. Oh, well, that would piss off the authorities. Yeah, a little alcohol, a little codeine syrup stolen from the drug cabinet. Oh. They have themselves a good time. Old Billy Bibbit, who's one of the characters that is very meek and has this stutter that McMurphy's been kind of standing up for and trying to kind of take it under his wing almost. Loses his virginity. Oh, good for Billy Bibbit. And the next morning, whenever the day staff arrives, they find the remains of the party, all the patients passed out, and they find Billy in a state of undress, cuddled up with the women. Oh no, poor Billy Bibbit. Well, so this is the time that Billy finally asserts himself and responds to Nurse Ratchet without a stutter. Oh! Well, we saw a man lose a stutter in Let There Be Light, but it was a little different. (laughs) Well, he gets the stutter back very quickly whenever Nurse Ratchet brings up his mother. There's, like, I'm just, like really not having a hard time understanding why my 18-year-old self picked this for my senior project in high school. And I picked it too. Because we're awesome. We didn't know each other. No. So Billy has an emotional breakdown, is taken to the doctor's office, and actually kills himself. Nurse Ratchet blames McMurphy, and McMurphy just goes insane. He knows that it is not his fault. And he attacks Nurse Ratchet, tearing in her clothes, exposing her breasts, which goes with that other metaphor we're not going to talk about. So he goes ballistic. Yeah. And he is restrained and sedated. It is kind of his fault, though. Not in the grand metaphor. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for poking holes in your metaphor. I didn't come up with the metaphor. No. The man who's famous for taking LSD did. By all means, let's let him have his say. I say so. He's going to slip some blue star tattoo on you. And then it will all make sense to me, man. But in the time that Murphy is gone and Nurse Ratchet is also gone because she is recovering from her injuries, many of the patients follow McMurphy's advice that he's been giving them. They check out. They leave. They transfer to other wards or other hospitals. And then when she returns, she can no longer speak due to her injuries. Well, she doesn't have a voice anymore. I wonder what that could symbolize. So she's lost her power over these men, and they've also been able to leave as well. But then McMurphy is brought back into the ward. One morning, after McMurphy's been gone three weeks, she made her last play. The ward door opened, and the black boys wheeled in 
the gurney. Oh, there's some really racist <laughs> descriptions in the book. With a chart at the bottom that said in a heavy black letters, McMurphy, Randall, post-operative. And below this was written in ink, lobotomy. They pushed it into the day room and left it standing against the wall, along next to the vegetables. A swirl of red hair over a face milk white, except for the heavy purple bruises around the eyes. Now our good friend Chief. Wait, so M- M- Nurse Ratchet had Murphy lobotomized? Yes. But he was just there to get the Cush Asylum treatment instead of having to go to the work farm. How did that happen? Should have gone pick peas. Should have picked peas, man. So Chief takes pity on him and smothers him. I I think that's fair. And then a great act of defiance and of self-empowerment. Mm-hmm. He lifts the hydrotherapy console that Murphy earlier was trying to do. Smashes the window and escapes. Get it, Chief. So, I mean, as we talked about, it's a very thinly veiled <laughs> metaphor. Sorry. Sorry for doing that to you. But when you break it down like this in the context of institutional power, as we've been talking about on the last episode for however long that we talked, it's hard not to see how thinly veiled that metaphor is. Context is everything. Right. And, you know, you see that contradiction of only a sane man would question this but the act of questioning means his sanity will be compromised and you see that in comparison to like the insane acts of the institution the Mm. things that the institution does that go beyond the pale you mean like go beyond acceptable normal human behavior right and that's how people viewed it and one of the famous lines in it from the book is Whenever Murphy's kind of getting mad at everybody, and he says, what do you think you are, for Christ's sake? Crazy or something? Well, you're not. You're not. You're no crazier than the average asshole out walking around on the street, and that's it. And he's right. For some of the patients. <laughs> they shouldn't be institutionalized, but that's a whole other story. But as I mentioned, the importance of this story in the context of what we're talking about is that it has colored our view of asylums and electroshock therapy and lobotomy since its release. Well, the idea that these treatments are enacted as punitive measures is very interesting and I believe very pervasive in our modern understanding of what psychiatric hospitals do. Oh, no, yeah. And Dr. Frank Pittman, who's a renowned psychiatrist, said the publication of this book had an enormous effect on his field. It gave voice, gave life to a basic distrust of the way in which psychiatry was being used for society's purposes, rather than the purpose of the people who had mental illness. And the New York Times stated in the 90s that in the public's mind, shock therapy has retained the tarnished image given in by King Casey's novels. Dangerous, inhumane, and overused. Was it? Overused? Dangerous? Inhumane? In a way. Okay. In a way. Shades of Grey, this episode. So electroshock therapy was invented by an Italian physician... Ugo Soletti, and he was looking for an alternative to the other shock therapies that we talked about in the last episode. Okay, so he's like saying maybe we shouldn't put people in comas anymore. Maybe we shouldn't do things that break people's limbs and make them feel like they're crumbling away. Exactly. He's like, we ha- has to be a better way to induce a seizure in somebody. <laughs> so he was like, I know. Electricity. Great. Let's do it. Thomas Edison somewhere, like, drumming his fingers impatiently, like, get this together. Think of what we can do. <laughs> so originally he was like, let's test this out. We got some dogs. Animal experiments. 
Yay. And he put one of the currants in the dog's mouth. Oh, no. And one in its anus. This is not logical. For some reason, that didn't work out well. Because it cooked him. Yeah, and so a lot of the dogs had heart attacks. Maybe we don't involve the heart in what we're doing here. Right. So one of the his assistants was like, hey, maybe we should just put it on the head. And he's like, oh, right, right, where the brain is. Thanks. Not writing your name down. Lucio Bini. <laughs> ah, damn it. Lucio gets credit. Fine. But the dog catchers kept bringing him dogs. Oh, so kind of the dog catchers. And oh. so he kept experimenting. Poor Fido. And, you know, he determined that, of course, using electricity, putting it on their heads, was an effective way to produce an epileptic fit. Now, before applying it to human beings, Soletti's assistants went to a Rome slaughterhouse to observe the electrical device that were used to incapacitate pigs prior to slaughter. Uh-huh. And discovered there was a wide margin between the amount of electricity that would create a seizure and the amount that would kill somebody. Or a pig. I feel like this is one of those, like, if you give a mouse a cookie books. If you give an Italian physician a dog and electricity. I was going to say, if you give a pig a poke, but whatever. <laughs> if you give a pig some electricity, he's maybe going to pass out. If you give a pig a lot of electricity, he's going to be bacon. So he finally decided to test this out in 1938. A Milanese man was found by the Roman police wandering in a train station, mumbling gibberish to himself. So as described by the author Charter, the patient, his head shaved, seemed quite indifferent to what was going on. A nurse placed the electrodes on his temple while an orderly put a rubber tube between his teeth to prevent him from biting his tongue. There Good was thought. A, Good thought. Yeah. There was a crack of electricity. The patient's muscles jolted once. Let's step it up to 90, said Soletti. Another electric crack, another spasm. The patient lay motionless for a minute, then began to sing. Why? Well, we'll try it one last time at a higher voltage. Why would you sing? At this point, the patient said in a perfectly calm and reasonable voice, as though answering an exam question, Look out! The first is pestiferous, the second mortiferous. Everyone kind of <laughs> looked at each other and said, let's do it again. I feel like they're flipping channels on a TV. Like, click, singing, click, poetry, click. Now, it was found the patient responded well. He had 10 more treatments. Oh, goodness. And was released, quote, in good condition and well-oriented. Singing and quoting strange rhymes. That was prior to the shocks. Okay. Endearing. It would be really interesting if the side effect of electroshock therapy was singing and rhyming. Now, originally this was called annihilation therapy. That's not good branding. Smartly renamed by a different yeah, physician. thank you. Thank you for that other physician. Now, electrical induction of severe grand mal seizures could be done several days in succession until clinical signs indicated regression of symptoms, which Soletti described as memory loss, marked confusion, disorientation, lack of verbal spontaneity, slurring of speech to the point of complete dysarthria or muteness, and utter apathy. They would act, quote, like a helpless infant, is incontinent but bowel and bladder functions, requires spoon feeding, and at times tube feeding. Now these symptoms would recede after treatment was complete and they had a few days to recover. So he has really like come upon the surge protector of turn it off and turn it on again. <laughs> Have you tried shocking it? So Lowenbach and Tyler were two other physicians that observed that post-convulsion amnesia and confusion was therapeutic and wanted to try it out in patients with more 
debilitating psychiatric illness, and they subjected 32 patients to ECT. 10 patients who received an average of 10 treatments were able to be discharged to the family. What What is constituted by debilitating psychiatric illness? Someone that could not even be cared for by their families. Okay. Kind of what it was considered at this time. So like maybe people who were really violent or completely delusional yeah. or... Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So people that would have to be institutionalized for, at this time, like life. Okay. So a case study. A 35-year-old man whose jittery feelings had evolved into a loss of appetite, sleeplessness, uncontrolled sexual thoughts, and a stubborn belief that his friend, who was alive, had been killed. It's going to be very shocking to him when he sees his friend. I would think that that's a really inconvenient barrier in a relationship. Like, every time you show up, he's like, Ah! You're dead! You are dead! And then he thinks you're a ghost, and then he tries to kill you to make sure you're dead. I would think that this is not good time buddy prizes (laughs) well so during this nervous breakdown he tried to kill himself by slashing his throat and he was committed and he was given 133 treatments over three days at which point he was medium rare like i mean when do you start to cook it's not that much electricity but 133 treatments over three days it's a lot so at the end of day one he was oriented so that means he kind of knew where he was he knew who he was he knew what was going on but he could no longer remember his symptoms. So he did not remember that his friend was dead. Or any of the other stuff. So okay. it's a seen as a good sign. Day two, he was oriented only to himself. He knew who he was. But he thought he was a decade younger, single, and childless. And I'm assuming because that is noted here that he was not single and childless. True. Okay. And on day three, he believed he was a teenager living on a farm. That's interesting. Had he at one point in his life been a teenager living on a farm? Or was this just some... I mean, I didn't say. I kind of assumed he was. So he just regressed further. He did not invent a new identity. Right. His amnesia was going further and further back. And this was the desired effect. Well, not necessarily. But that's something that would improve usually after time. Okay. So on day four, the fourth day, the patient was very much confused and and was unable to understand even simple instructions. His speech was thick and slow and frequently unintelligible. When given food or water, he sat swishing it around his mouth without swallowing it. He resisted going to the toilet. He began letting saliva drool from his mouth, and he voided on the bathroom floor. The fifth day, he said he felt better and talked a little spontaneously. So the fourth day was the last day. No more treatments. He was unable to remember his name when asked, but responded to it when called. He ate well, but slept poorly. The sixth day, he got up early, went promptly to the bathroom, and started washing his face and hair, but repeated this action until interrupted. (laughs) Whoops. Glitch. Try turning it off and on again. No! He now thought he was in his 20s, unmarried, and working in a grocery store. He began to complain of things whirling about him. And would frequently say, this elevator is going up too fast. The seventh day, he wandered about the hall trying to unlock doors and spoke of getting ready to go to work in a few minutes. He now dressed spontaneously, but was slow in initiating each new action. During the first part of the second week after shock therapy, he gradually remembered being married, but not that he had a child. He was friendly and cooperative. In the third week, the patient regained much of his memory except for a period extending almost one year. He was totally unable to remember having been sick. In this condition, he was discharged on the 21st day after the treatment had started. So he lost a year of his memory? Yeah. And it's a common side effect with uh, electroconvulsive therapy. Oh my god. Is amnesia. 
I mean, one must hope that all significant life events are, you know, have happened prior to that year or else we're back to that friend who died delusion. So I know that I've theorized that he should have been cooked by this point. And you've told me that you regress in memory and then gain memory just by existing over time after the treatments. But I have absolutely nary a clue of how this works. I know that it's not your style. <laughs> to explain things? No, no, no. To I have a feeling we need to jump ahead in time to figure out how and why this works. Because it does not seem like they know how or why this works as they started by putting electricity up a dog's ass. You want to jump ahead in time? Uh, yeah. You're going to create a paradox. I don't want to create a paradox, but I'm sorry. I'm going to have to know exactly how this works. Well, how it works is a good question. No, somebody has to know, right? No. Oh. So there are a few different hypotheses, and these this kind of works for all of your shock treatments, because mm-hmm. even though like the insulin shock treatment and the others would cause all kinds of bad side effects and they're definitely inhumane they still worked in a way right so the turn it off turn it on again hypothesis so that's one so there's the anticonvulsant view and that holds that paradoxically the whole purpose of causing a seizure is to tap into the brain's ability to stop the seizure naturally okay so the brain's anticonvulsant mechanisms alter the brain's neurochemistry, kind of acting as a built-in like antidepressant. Okay. Now another is the neuroendocrine hypothesis, and that states that seizures can cause a shift in the body's hormonal systems, kind of reset it. Okay. And another is that seizures themselves change the levels of chemicals in the brain, and thus can improve someone's psychiatric symptoms. And so it is done now. Uh-huh. In a much more reputable way. Okay. And it's extremely effective for patients that do not respond to any other treatment. Okay. And it's actually one of the safest ways to treat like really, really bad depression in a pregnant person. Huh. Because you don't cook the baby. Okay, so the technical answer, if I'm understanding what you're saying, is meh, still not sure. We got some ideas. We got some ideas. And then applies for all the shock therapies. But you know, it's used in an ethical and effective way now. Back in the day, it was not. It, it was, was all willy-nilly yeah. with the shock treatment. It was so massively overused. This is really effective for patients with affective disorders, so like mood disorders. Mm-hmm. But they were using it on, you know, everybody. Everybody. Everybody up in here getting shocked. In 1950, Ewan Cameron, a psychiatrist at McGill University in Montreal, described it as de-patterning his patients by giving them 12 treatments daily. That seems excessive. I mean, like, how long does it take? Not Oh, long. it's quick. It's, it's quick. quick. quick so quick, they yeah. just put them in and zap them and take them out? Yeah. Okay. But they do it, like, every hour. <laughs> Good Lord. At the Milledgeville State Hospital in Georgia, which was at one time the largest asylum in the United States, it was used for uncooperative patients and was called the Georgia Power Cocktail. Oh, that's so Southern. Which nowadays I think has Everclear in it. No, it's um, hot damn. You're so right. But a lot of famous people received electroshock therapy. One being Sylvia Plath. That didn't work. Right? She wrote in the bell jar, Then something bent down and took hold of me and shook me like the end of the world. Wee! It shrilled through an air crackling with blue light. With each flash, a great jolt drubbed me till I thought my bones would break and the sap fly out of me like a split plant. So she's endorsing it. 
is what you're saying. She's she's fan. Yeah, she was a big fan of it when she turned that oven on. But what an evocative sentiment. I would snap and the sap would fly out of me like a split plant. Ugh. And another writer that also received electroshock therapy, and this time at the Mayo Clinic, was Ernest Hemingway. Also worked. Yeah, right? He wrote to his biographer, What is the sense of ruining my head and erasing my memory, which is my capital, and putting me out of business? It was a brilliant cure, but we lost the patient. So, of course, soon after, Hemingway shot himself. Hemingway is the gut puncher of literary figures. like In one line. He is the king of just like, ah, oh, that noise, that noise, ah. Oh. And I know, I know that he's a misogynistic asshole. I know that there are so many reasons that women should hate Ernest Hemingway. But if you can't agree that that line, it was a brilliant cure, but we lost the patient, raises the hair it's on brilliant. the back of your neck. Gives you a little shock, huh? A little shock. But at this time... Like we discussed, we start to see kind of changes in psychiatry. And we start to see people trying to understand madness. Well, and madness kind of gains a certain amount of cachet. Oh, really? I mean, I, I think so. I think Foucault may be a little responsible for that. You know, some of the high-profile cases in, like, the 20s, even, like Zelda Fitzgerald and, mm, like, right. you know, like these glamorous people whose lifestyles just make them go mad. That madcap scene, you know? And... There's a famous R.D. Lang quote that says that mental illness is a sane response to an insane society. And we start to see more of that as the social critiques become harsher, as people become more critical of institutions. The person who's gone a little mad kind of becomes this antihero, this figurehead, the person who is too great to be understood. Yeah. And I mean, then you see the evolution of that with one flow of the cuckoo's nest. Absolutely. It's the one that stands up against the man, stands up against the institution. Right. And so in his book, Madness and Civilization, Foucault contrasts the openness to madness that supposedly once filled the world with Bosch-like creativity with the modern world's punitive isolation and medicalization of the mad. So he says that we were once a much more free society. The world looked like Bosch paintings. That is not a good thing. Hieronymus Bosch? I love Bosch. That's not a good thing. We were more open to it and receptive. and we... Little demons everywhere. Right. But they were all very interesting demons that came from a very peculiar mad place. You can go live in a Bosch painting. I don't painting. want to live in a Bosch painting. I'm just telling you what Foucault said. I'll go live in a Van Gogh painting. Oh, that's not much better. Depends on the painting. I'm going to go sit in a pile of hay. There are four of them. I can pick my season. Which season would you pick? Oh, the winter's so pretty. It's cold, though. But it's pretty. But it's cold. Paintings aren't cold. So Van Gogh, but very much, and I'm going to say Van Gogh. I know it's like Van Gogh, but I'm not, okay? So just write your letters. Don't spit in the mic, please. Van Gogh. Yeah, that'll destroy the mic. Yeah, I'm not. Okay, so it's going to be Van Gogh, and I apologize in advance. But he became a symbol of mental illness and madness, and this entire avant-garde movement that he heralded and really participated in sort of became, you know, labeled with those same things. This is the art of the mad. This is the people who are outside of society. This is a fringe movement. But it was very powerful at the same time. And so when German expressionist Ludwig Kirchner painted himself as a wounded soldier with a severed hand in 1915, he did not have those physical injuries. He was using this painting as a metaphor, and he drew on the legacy of Van Gogh's self-portrait with a bandaged ear to create a study in shell shock. Oh, that's fantastic. Making it visible. Yes. 
1922, a psychiatrist named Hans Pinzhorn collected the work of his patients, their paintings and drawings, in order to create a book called The Art of the Insane. And he believed that what he saw in these drawings and paintings was a very unique form of creativity. And this link between art and madness was really forced on Van Gogh as a figurehead. And he became sort of the pope of the cult of madness. And all of the work associated with him, this avant-garde impressionism, etc., kind of took on that same label and it became known as outsider art. So he was the head of the outsider art movement. Well, he didn't want to be, and neither did the Van Gogh scholars. The Van Gogh really scholars like <laughs> were much affronted by this designation. There was much pushback. They abhor the idea of his work being classified as outsider art and say that the evidence of his deteriorating mental state is not as plainly displayed as most would like you to believe. They say, oh, like, but I bet there are books on it. Oh, but there are so many books on it. And one example they cite is this wheat field with crows that was painted toward the end of his life in 1890. And the crows are these deep black slashes against a blue sky. But they say that this is just art. It's not an evidence of any mental anguish. But it's so much fun to read into it. And he's not here to correct us. It's perfect. But his true last canvas was this study of tree roots, which are blue in this painting, which is lovely. And it's very evocative because there are large swaths of negative space that are atypical of Van Gogh. And it's probably empty due to the fact that he killed himself before filling them in. We don't have to read too much into that. No, I think that qualifies (laughs) as evidence of mental illness. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's just me. But there was an exhibition that focused on the claims of madness that surround Van Gogh within the last 10 years. And person writing for the guardian says that when it comes to the material reality of van gogh's last days this exhibition is harrowing it even has a drawing of him on his deathbed his last letter which theo who was his brother found in his pocket has stains on it which forensic scientists have not been able to yet to prove or disprove to be blood throughout this exhibit there's sort of this narrative of decline it begins with him cutting his ear and then he enters an asylum and eventually he commits suicide but it may not be that clear cut he officially entered the realm of doctors and asylums when he cut his ear off on the 23rd of December in 1888. And the exhibition included a portrait of Dr. Felix Ray, who was the physician who saved his life after he removed his ear. When's he going to die from that? He cut his whole ear off. So? How much blood? I mean, wouldn't it just no, bleed? Might just put pressure. <laughs> but a big, giant, gaping wound? I guess it depends on how he did it. He did it. He really did it. A slash like the birds. Right. Like that. But there are also portraits of his fellow patients in the asylum. And there was this man in, that is particularly striking because he has one eye. And it really is reminiscent of Van Gogh's portrait with a bandaged ear. And several ideas about his mental illness are explored. Some people speculate that he had epilepsy or tertiary syphilis or schizophrenia. But doctors made notes at the time of his diagnosis. And that they very much indicate that they believe that he was a sane man who went insane and they lack the perspective to consider that he may have been deteriorating for some time before this inciting incident it's very funny because it's a line in the sand it's like well he lost it a lot of times that's how they thought things were it's like they had that break mm-hmm. which can happen <laughs> but in most cases it's a slow deterioration and again they 
go back to his letters and they say the Van Gogh Museum has published the fullest edition of these outpourings, the most sustained literary self-examination of any artist. And they reveal a man liable to get overexcited, who is hugely impractical, formidably intense and often isolated and incapable to his own sorrow of maintaining happy relationships. And so it seems like there may have been some temperamental issues before he ever really went off the deep end. But he was part of a movement that called themselves the Impressionist of Petit Boulevard, as opposed to Monet and Renoir, who were the Impressionist of the Grand Boulevard. Ah, these were the unappreciated Impressionists. Yes. And they saw themselves as revolutionary social outsiders who took every physical and mental risk to create new art. Madness was in the unwholesome air they breathed. Syphilis was one source of danger. Manet had died from it. And one of Van Gogh's favorite writers, Maupassant, might lose his reason to it. Insanity was seen as a professional risk for a modern artist. In his novel, The Masterpiece, Van Gogh's literary hero, Zola, portrays an impressionist painter whose pursuit of new ideas leads to madness and death. It was published in 1886, two years before Van Gogh's arrival in Arles. Zola based his doom character on his friend and former schoolmate, Cezanne. Van Gogh did fear madness, but he extensively ponders in his letters whether or not it's necessary for artistic genius. It's so interesting. Like he, he had some insight, obviously. I mean, mm-hmm. In his letters, he just was constantly analyzing himself. And that thought that he was wondering, like, do I need this? Will I not be myself? Will we lose the patient? Right. If we lose the madness. Yes. And I think that that's something that is incredibly modern because he's thinking of himself as a character. It is almost like a literary analysis, not a psychoanalytic analysis. He is looking at himself in a grand drama is how it seems to me, at least. And that's something that we do now on a regular basis as we update profiles and like kind of cultivate this public image and persona. But it was it sounds modern, but it had to be so much more internalized and kind of scalding. There was no backing away from it for him. In the modern age, he's really become almost a martyr to the cause of art. And people who follow art history and, you know, see these patterns in writers or musicians or anything like that sort of equate him with this idea of creative malady. And the idea of him as a mad genius arguably might originate from his art. And maybe he's concocted it in some way. Like, for example, in his self-portrait with a bandaged ear from 1889, he's foregrounding this wound that he's given himself. He's sliced off his ear with a razor blade. And then he gives it to his prostitute friend. (laughs) Yes, and he does. He literally, like, takes it and it's all wrapped up and he gives it to her. Which, if you want to get to go to a mental institution, if you're really just bored with your life... That's the way to do it. It's a one-way ticket. That seems really efficient to me. But he's in the foreground. That's what we see. It's not the other side of his head. He is painting that wound. On purpose. Yes. And he's also staring directly out. And his eyes are very, very blue. And they show up because of the ruddiness and the orange in his hair. And it gives us this image of this wounded genius, this deep contemplative man and he is sort of making his own persona he is making his public identity in this painting it's not an objective record it has an agenda right it's not a picture right <laughs> which those can be objective too of course but like he is purposely showing it do you think there was some like sacrifice from my art to it too yes look what i've done like this is what i'll do for this i believe in it this much 
And, you know, I keep saying it, but like, really, I've always read that he cut his ear off and things. Now, I really had it in my head that it meant like his earlobe. That's always what I thought. No, no, no. All of it. I don't understand what that means. All of it. Like, I can't. I need a picture. Well, you have one, but there's a bandage. It's in the way. Can you please remove the bandage, sir? That was draft one. They took it away from him and burned it. Think about the commitment you have to have to take off your entire ear with a razor blade. It is incredibly deliberate. You cannot accidentally do that. The amount of pain you would have to be in, the amount of blood you would be losing, all of these things. It's an incredibly deliberate and direct effort at self-harm. And it really should be seen as like a suicide attempt. And I don't think it was. I think it was like, what a crazy thing he did. Not he's going to kill himself. Just that mad genius. And after this, around this time, there was a formal petition from the people at Arles, and they wanted him to be incarcerated in the institute. Lock him up, literally. They mob, pitchforks, get the monster. This guy's a foreigner. Get him out of here. (laughs) But after he was released from the hospital, he did about another two years before he went out to a cornfield and shot himself in the stomach. And it took him 30 hours to die. What a way to go. It's terrible. It is tragic. But he became the symbol of this this idea of the creative malady. And it was explored by an author named George Pickering in 1974. And he believed that he traced this pattern in the way that a lot of really sensitive overachievers throughout history have suffered from self-induced illness. And he believed that they had such active minds and such active imaginations, et cetera, et cetera, that they all had some kind of conversion disorder. No. But the people he list in his book were Charles Darwin. He did. He did what? He had a lot of maladies. He definitely was agoraphobic. Well, he was, but he had had something like Crohn's disease or something like that. But he had some kind of weird stomach thing, right? Like, I kind of remember you talking about this. Right. And he, you know, no one, this has been a hobby of people's, is trying to diagnose Charles Darwin. He's well, He he's definitely has, like, massive anxiety. Yes. Like, massive, massive anxiety. And then he talks about Florence Nightingale, which I'm not sure what her malady was. And then Mary Baker Eady, Sigmund Freud, and Marcel Proust. So all of these people had terrible conversion disorders because they were so genius. I don't know about that. (laughs) So this is where we get this strange idea of like the creative mind having a key role in determining what flavor of crazy you are. So while that was one way to look at madness as something that was needed for creative genius, you did start to have people like William James and others coming out of the woodworks and starting to establish psychiatry. And people like Freud coming up with their ideas of neuroses and that there's a reason for these different mental illnesses. While they're not always right, (laughs) the important point is that they started Take it seriously. When they start to say, oh, hey, there's something maybe we can do about this. Oh, that seems key. And there's also a way that we can talk to people and we can diagnose things and find the root for their problems and start to help them. And there are lots of stepping stones along that path. So one of my favorites, one of the things that I've always wanted to know more about because I find it very interesting is the Rorschach test. Like from Watchmen? Yes and no. That is Alan Moore's most genius idea. No, it really is. It's such a great idea. And the name, the word is so great. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the mask, it changes. Ah, so good. Sorry, we just comic nerded out a little bit on you. I'm sorry. We did that like a few episodes back too. I'm sorry. Uh, it happens. But the Rorschach test was developed by... Rorschach. Herman Rorschach, that is. And he was a Swiss doctor who in 1921 put together a test comprised of 10 ink blots. Some were black and white, some were black and white and red, and some were colorful. What? They're colors? Yes, and there have always been colors. Are there still colors? Yes. What? I know. It seems so wrong. You're blowing my mind. I'm sorry. Now, the first publication about this as a diagnostic tool was in a monograph that he published called Psychodiagnostic with a K because he's Swiss. And in the 40s and 50s, the Rorschach test is the choice of clinical psychology. It fell into disfavor after many clinicians began criticizing that it was too subjective and projective in nature. Ironically, this is never what Rorschach intended to happen. Really? How could it not be projective? Well, he was playing a game called Blotto with some adolescent patients. And Blotto was a game that had inkblots. And he noticed that certain children gave characteristically different answers at the sight of different inkblots. And he started noticing patterns. And he's like, this is really interesting. I should write about this. So he characterized the blots as form interpretation test, but cautioned that his findings were very, very preliminary and stressed the importance of much more experimentation. However, he died in 1922 when he was only 37 years old. So a year after he publishes this monograph. Oh, so he had like no follow-up work on it. Right. And he had only studied inkblot tests for four years altogether, even before publishing the monograph. So this is a very, very beginnings of an idea about what this could be used for and what its potential power was. And it was like such a loss. It had so much potential. And so after he died, it was like a salvage yard going through his work. Just like, oh, somebody should do something with this. And everyone thought, and it's me. I can make pretty ink plots. Eventually, there were four different systems for administering and scoring and interpreting the test. Sounds legit. Right. A lot of people were like, okay, you know what? If there are this many ways to do it, it can't be right. And it led to a lot of doubts in the reliability and validity of this kind of testing. However, in the 1950s, one John Exner, an American, began to kind of take over. And he gathered up all the processes associated with the test. And he does say that David Rapport, Bruno Klopfer... Marguerite Hertz and Zygmunt Piotrowski and Samuel Beck all played a role in systematizing the tool. These last two episodes are all Americans taking Europeans' ideas and just like running with it, no matter if it was good or bad. More bleeding. More blotting. More insulin. Higher voltage. Turn it up to 11. At least we didn't put it up anyone's ass. That's right. Not that we know of. That's probably also right. But he started kind of compiling all the work that all of these people had done into a single cohesive system, noting that each of them had considerable merit, but each was also seriously flawed in one way or another. Shocking. Eventually, he compiled three volumes that spanned three editions on the topic of inkblot testing. And he, according to this exuberant writer who was chronicling the exploits of Exner, says, Exner has almost single-handedly rescued a drowning beast and breathed life back into it. The result 
is the resurrection of perhaps the single most powerful psychometric instrument ever envisioned. Uh, hyperbole. A little bit. What would he see on an inkblot test? Everything! In 1974, he published the Rorschach Comprehensive Scoring System, which is the scoring system commonly used today. And there had been considerable experimentation attempted with ink blots as tests of imagination, personality, and intelligence. Krugman cites evidence that as early as 1895, Binet and Henri had suggested that ink blots could be used for studying various personality traits, especially visual imagination. And so the chronicling of ink blots throughout the history of psychiatry really begins with a pre-psychology phase where artists who painted indeterminate forms believed that they were simulating the creative imagination by painting forms that were unfinished and indeterminate. And so these you know, images get out into the world and people begin to say, like, what do you see when you look at that? It's like a fun party game. Right. Oh, wait, that's how it started. It actually <laughs> is how it started. And the second phase was psychological testing. Binet introduced psychological experimental period in 1895 with the assessment techniques, which he measured imagination as an index of cognitive ability. He believed that when people were able to give a large number of responses, it had a positive correlation to lively visual imagination. So like that would be, I show you an ink blot and you're like, and you're like, how many things can this be? And you're like, oh, well, if I look at it this way, I can see a bear. And if it's this way, I see my mother's vagina. And if it's this way, it's a dog on a top. What? Hmm? Dog with a probe up his ass. What? 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 We need to stop reading about this stuff. (laughs) And so he believed that if you had a good imagination, you were probably pretty smart. And if you could think of a lot of responses for what is this inkblot, you had a good imagination. So almost an intelligence test. And Binet is the dude who does do the IQ test for years and years and years. So whatever. That's what he thinks. Other inkblot researchers in this same period hypothesized that conscious awareness was slowed by ambiguous stimuli thus making the perceptual process accessible for research purposes. So they thought they were kind of like cutting in on the machinations of perception by having you interpret a non-concrete item. They could see how your brain worked things out and learn more about how you recognize things. Not projectionary at all. Nah. But then there was the third period, which did begin in 1921, when Herman Rorschach published his monograph. And he was obsessed with ink blots. Like from childhood, this man was obsessed with ink blots. What was his mother doing to him? I don't know. And how does one even find out that one is obsessed with ink blots? But his friend. The mother. The mother. His friends called him Klex, which I assume is like some sort of vernacular term for an ink blot. And they also called him Ink Blot. Creative children. Creative children, yes. They would not score high on Benet's, what is it, <laughs> test? But the first purpose for developing an inkblot test was to investigate the subject's reflex hallucination through viewing inkblots, like how easily they could make something up. Castle, in 1980, extended his use of the technique to intimate that a clinician who is administering inkblots could recognize the, quote, inner cry of their patients. Oh, 1980s. 80s, yes. I bet he had dolphin posters. And then they told us all about their satanic ritual yes, abuse. What do you see in this ink plot? Satan. Satan raping me. Satan. But ink plot procedures have been used for studying imagination, thought processes, reflex hallucinations, intelligence, and personality. Currently, they are being used to understand a subject's psychopathology and hear his or her inner cry. 
says the Association for Projective Psychological Testing. Fantastic. Some psychologists use the test to examine a person's personality characteristics and emotional functioning. It has been employed to detect underlying thought disorder, especially in cases when patients are reluctant to describe their thinking processes openly. And it was this widely used diagnostic test in the 1960s. Now, interestingly, in the UK, after World War II, many psychologists working with the Ministry of Defense began utilizing Rorschach tests, along with other tests, for the selection and monitoring of military personnel. So you could be declared unfit to serve if you saw too many penguins on your Rorschach test. I don't know. I see guns and blood. Hmm. Oh, yeah. Thanks for coming in. We're going to go let you do the the testing over there with the conscientious objectors. <laughs> so again, at the turn of the century, we're having more and more movement and changes in all of these fields of neurology and psychiatry. And we're starting to kind of figure out that the brain has something to do with this. Oh my God, are we really just getting to the brain at the turn of the last century? No, we knew that the brain... Was where is that? I mean, we talked about it with Hippocrates. Even had the idea, but with things like Phineas Gage. Oh, Phineas Gage! I know that guy. Yeah, who had a severe brain injury, lost a chunk of his brain. Okay, it was not a severe brain injury. That makes it sound like he bumped his head. A giant tampering rod went through his skull, right, and like punched it out like a hole punch. Yes, and it severely affected his personality. But otherwise, he was pretty yeah, functional. Yeah, he was pissed. He was pissed about losing that chunk of his brain to a tampering rod. Tamping rod. Tamping. It was a little more than that. But then you also had people like uh, Pierre Broca. Broca. Broca's aphasia. Broca. He's a smart guy. Yeah, who are figuring out that certain parts of the brain do certain things. Some neuroanatomy. Yeah, they're starting to create a map. But Jacob, they'd already created a map. What's that? Phrenology. Oh, you're right. Silly me. But this is a real one. A real one. Like, Broca's areas still exist today. Yeah, we talked about it in our Feral Kids episode. So, this is called the lesion method. And so that means that they would study people with certain brain injuries, and they'd be able to determine what that function of the brain was, because it would go away and not work anymore. It sounds like really sad experimentation. It is, but this is what neurology did before CT and MRI. Uh, this is what neurology did even with Oliver Sacks. Like, I remember him writing about some of his earlier encounters with patients, and it was basically this kind of stuff. Was well, it's it still part of Observation yeah. and figuring it out. Like, even with MRI and stuff, it's definitely... MRI was not that widely used when he was training. No, but in his later practice, even with, you know, he was definitely still like, well, we see where it is, but let's see what happens. <laughs> Oh, yeah, it's still a huge part of neurology. Don't get me wrong. But now instead of using the lesion method, we can use fMRIs, things like that. Handy. Now, in 1888, you have Dr. Gottlieb Burkhardt. Gottlieb. And he has this theory, the neurological roots of madness. And he felt that you could alleviate these symptoms by the destruction of part of the brain. Oh, this sounds like it's going to go so well. Thank you, Dr. Burkhardt. Well, so he had no training in, as a neurosurgeon. Did anyone? Very few. Like seven people. Yeah. Okay. Well, he was finally able to test out his theories. The first one was this 51-year-old described particularly vicious woman. <laughs> I'd be her friend. Let's have drinks. 
who had been institutionalized for 16 years. So he, his first experiments were on a nasty woman. Yes. And they did five surgeries over a year, removing 18 grams total from the left side of the brain. How much brain do you have? Is that a lot of brain? Any bit of brain is a lot of brain. Okay. And they kind of just removed random areas. Okay. This seems like the worst idea ever. It is. Okay. Patient became a little more easy to handle. (laughs) And, you know, he did it on more patients and two died and two became epileptic and two committed suicide. He felt like he was pretty successful. No, he did not. It's like the worst 12 days of Christmas ever. So he stated that a doctor could stand for two, one of two things. They could stand for primum non nocere, which is line from the Hippocratic Oath, first do no harm, uh-huh. or a different phrase stating, better to do something than nothing. It's what nowadays historians will call the heroic form of medicine. I hate it. I hate it so much. This is the age of heroic medicine. It seems so unethical. It is. And he said that every path that leads to new victories is aligned with the crosses of the dead. Oh my god. He and Mingala would have been good buddies. Oh yeah. And this was published in 1892 and thankfully and kind of shockingly, the medical establishment reacted with complete revulsion. Good. Yeah, they were like, this is freaking terrible. It's too far. It is a bridge too far. And so it, it kind of faded into obscurity. I'm so glad he didn't get a Nobel Prize. Oh, just wait. Okay. Last time I was horrified by something someone did, they got a Nobel Prize. Someone's going to get one. Okay. So, in 1935, at a neurological conference in London, two Yale physicians, Fulton and Jacobson, were presenting a case study they had. And they were trying to do intelligence testing on chimps. Cool. And, you know, they found that they'd get angry sometimes whenever they had to keep doing this. What, wild animals get angry when you try to make them do things? Yeah. Wow. Science, man. And so they called this experimental neuroses. No, it's pissing off a chimp. That's the technical name for what you're doing. And so they took the chimps, they were very angry, and they destroyed both of their frontal lobes. (gasps) Oh my god! So Becky and Lucy, the chimps... Who had precious little names and no frontal lobes. Would now do the tests without getting angry and neurotic. Oh. But, you know, they had a lot more errors now. (laughs) It's not funny. It's not funny because I know where it's going and it's not funny, but it's kind of funny. Now, see, the worst part about this is that you can hear about the chimps. You can hear about Becky and Lucy, the chimps, who were going to be tested for their intelligence, who had their lobes destroyed. And someone in that crowd went... This could be useful. Right. His name was... Oh, God. I thought I was talking about a hypothetical. Nope. His name was Igas Moniz, and he was a Portuguese physician. And he asked them at the conference if they thought this could be done on humans. And they said, why would you want to do it on humans? It made our monkey stupid. I wouldn't be surprised if that's what they said. <laughs> but three months later, in 1935, he decided to try it himself. These heroes are really terrible. He was like, we've got to try this on humans. Further animal work would not be useful because there are no animal models of mental illness. He needs to meet our dog. Our dog is neurotic. So he jumped into human experimentation right away. And interestingly, some people think he was so on board with it because he'd recently had a big fight over the claims for the invention of 
cerebral angiography. What does that mean? You've had a cerebral angiogram. I've had that. Yes, when they pump a, at this time, they pump a radioactive fluid into your blood vessels and take x-rays of your brain to look at vasculature. Which is really cool. That's a cool invention. Yeah. Far less cool is what he is planning to do now, which is to cut out people's brains. Mm, frontal lobes. <laughs> and so he was like, if I can invent this, I can get my name on it and win a Nobel Prize. Something like that. Best of intentions, this fellow. All the right reasons. So scientists were pretty sure, as they're mapping out this brain, they're mapping out the human brain, that the frontal lobe is kind of the seat of psychiatric illness. Because that's kind of where our humanity comes from. Right. That's like your personality, isn't it? And your reasoning. Yes. Yeah. So let's get rid of it, is what he says. He felt that cutting the brain fibers might interrupt the abnormal brain circuitry of psychiatric patients, thus freeing them from a cycle of endless rumination. Rumination. Ruminate. That means like pondering, brooding. Yeah, going over and over and over again to break in the cycle of like anxiety or delusions, etc. Oh my god. So what he did was he invented something called a leucotome. Uh-huh. And he would drill two holes into the patient's skull. He would then insert a long tube with a coil of wire into the brain. And now he would press the plunger and the coil would go into the brain matter and he'd remove small pieces of tissue strategically. Uh Uh-huh. So he would remove four cores out two from each side of the patient's frontal lobe. So the right frontal and the left frontal lobe, both lobes? Yes. It seems excessive. It's like in the thing... The device itself is like a a toilet snake. It is, yeah. Okay. So he was awarded the Nobel Prize in medicine. Shit. Shit. I was really? Come on. But hey, in 1938, he was shot by one of his former patients. I don't want to say I'm okay with it. I'm not. I'm not going to say I'm okay with it. Murder's pretty much always wrong. He wasn't murdered. Oh, he was just shot? Yes. Okay, then that's fine. Ha! (laughs) Karma. So the science behind it was not sound. No, toilet snaking a brain is never sound science. And then he also really didn't follow his patients very long. Just, you know, like a few weeks, make sure they're doing okay. Can we get his Nobel Prize back? People have tried. There is no... Mechanation? Right, there's like no mechanism to do it. So he did 19 more of these before publishing his first paper in 1936. This guy was running with this. Like, this is so fast. Oh, definitely. He was like, I want to get my name on this. I want to get my name on this. I'm going to get a Nobel Prize. That's what he did. I mean, he hears about making monkeys stupid at a conference, comes home, and is like, you know what we need to do? Toilet snake brains. And everyone else is like, good idea. And I love the idea that he's going so fast with it because he's like, if I don't do it, someone else will. And he's right. No, he's right. Terrible. It's terrifying. And so a young physician, a neurologist, read this paper. And the he, paper of the Nobel Prize winning fellow. Yes, yeah, the okay. monograph. And he thought this is a fantastic idea. So in 1943, the Veterans Affairs no. Chief Frank no. Hines received a memo recommending lobotomies for veterans no. with intractable mental illness. No. Saying This may be done in suitable cases under local anesthesia. It does not demand a high degree of surgical skill. It was approved. No. And over the next 12 years, at least 2,000 vets were lobotomized. So we were talking about World War II. 
And when it began, the U.S. was looking to avoid soldiers prone to things like shell shock. They did screen potential recruits for psychological trouble signs, and they even rejected 1.8 million American men for this. But nevertheless, the military and the VA found themselves packed. A 1955 National Research Council study counted 1.2 million active duty troops admitted to military hospitals during the war itself for psychiatric and neurological wounds, compared with 680,000 for battle injuries. Now, one VA administrator wrote, In practical use, the operation has been found of value in eliminating apprehension, anxiety, depression, and compulsion, and obsession with the marked emotional content. He urged the agency to approve the procedure. So within a month, the VA headquarters set guidelines. In order to try to limit lobotomies to cases in which other types of treatment, including shock therapy, have failed. I mean, they just did everything imaginable to these kids. Like, I mean, think about it. You were, like, living your life in the apple pie 1940s, and you then find out you were going to be sent away for training. You've probably never left your state. And then you go through rigorous boot camp in an unfamiliar environment. Then they load you up and ship you across the world, across the ocean, and you are faced with death every day. I mean, this is something that's happening today. It absolutely... You can't act like this is something only from 70 years ago now that you are but this is still a problem no but i mean the exposure that they had to horrendous conditions and i just can't imagine it i cannot imagine it and it something about it in the 40s really does strike me because like my grandfather fought in world war ii and at the time that he went to training camp in oregon like the reason it resonates with me the idea of being plucked out of your familiar environment is he'd never been more than 15 miles away from his home at the time he went like think about how small your world was you know no internet no phone calls no anything and you're just suddenly in this completely different world and it I cannot imagine many things more traumatizing than going through that experience. And we've got them home. We've tried to fix them. We need to fix them quick because so many of them are broken. So many. So many. And it's expensive. It's hard to deal with. And it's almost a shame. Like a shame and a splotch. A stigma. Yeah. And it without a doubt is. At this point in history especially. And so remember that I said that a young neurologist had read that paper. Well, in 1936, Dr. Freeman, along with his neurosurgeon partner, Dr. Watts, Mm -hmm. performed their first lobotomy. Mm -hmm. This was on a 63-year-old woman suffering from depression, anxiety, and insomnia. And Dr. Watts said, I knew as soon as I operated on a mental patient and cut into a physically normal brain, I'd be considered radical by some people. Yeah. And so it was a controversial topic. A VA member considering hiring Freeman was put out saying controversial subjects today in neuropsychiatry are the indications, contraindications for prefrontal lobotomies. They said that they had no advisor for this, this new thing that they have approved, and they were considering hiring this Dr. Freeman fellow. Now, quote, there are certain objections to an appointment of Dr. Freeman on the grounds that he is a biased enthusiast. Oh my God, the lobotomy enthusiast. They felt the benefit outweighed that. And there's a written note on the memo, like on top of the typed memo, Mm -hmm. saying, probably the best man, many psychiatrists are skeptical of him. Ooh, you have to wonder if 
he's the best man because psychiatrists are skeptical of him or if it's like an see also. Yeah, I love looking through old files and seeing the handwritten notes that get left on things like the FBI files and stuff. They're very telling. I know it's so interesting because you get to see the thought process, Mm -hmm. what they're thinking. I know they're, they're concerned, but they're worried because they feel like they have to do something. It's back to that. Is it better to do something than nothing? This is a hell of a something, Jacob. No, it is. It is. It doesn't make it right. It's just that's the thought process. So in Life magazine, there was a huge expose called Bedlam 1946 that exposed the worsening asylum conditions and, of course, referencing it to looking like concentration camps. Ooh. And they urged a need for action to reduce this patient load. And they cited neurosurgery as the answer, or as Dr. Freeman liked to call it, psychosurgery. Oh, that's an interesting distinction. Not operating on the mind, I'm operating on the psyche. Yes. Oh. So Freeman outlined his prefrontal lobotomy in full detail in his 1942 paper in the Bulletin of the New York Academy of Medicine. Okay, so before what was happening was not a prefrontal lobotomy. It was. It was called a leucotomy, and he changed it up. So Freeman changed that too? He changed how it was done, but it was still similar in the first wave of his lobotomies. Okay, so this is his first wave of lobotomies. This is when he is outlining his new technique he's been working on since 1936. So he's going to take the the whole drilling technique of our Portuguese Nobel Prize winner and improve upon it. Yes. Okay, so better than toilet snake. So he wrote in prefrontal lobotomy, the surgical relief of mental pain, that by psychosurgery we wish to designate surgical operations upon the anatomically intact brain in the effort to relieve mental symptoms. Psychosurgical operations are comparable to operations upon the sympathetic nervous system or upon the pain pathways of the central nervous system, in that anatomically normal structures are sacrificed in the interest of the health of the patient. Psychosurgery relieves mental pain. And now he does kind of make a note to his detractors. For many, it would seem unjustifiable, to use no stronger term, to sacrifice man's greatest heritage, the frontal lobes, merely in the interest of this greater comfort and freedom from fear and self-consciousness. We were all brought up on the story of Phineas Gage. Patients do lose something in the process. And just because the patient is relieved of mental distress and is again cheerful is no reason for calling the operation a success, even though a contended drone is more bearable than a complaining one. What the heck does he mean by that? It's a good question. It seems like he's saying this doesn't serve a purpose. Well, he's saying, and then he says, Enough patients now have been returned to their homes able to manage them and to work for gain, who previously have necessarily been confined in institutions to, to make us optimistic about eventual results. It would seem that in certain cases, the elimination of part of the activity of the frontal lobe has been of an advantage to the total personality. So he's saying there are changes. He's saying it right away. He is not hiding that. He's like, there are changes. But they're able to get back, and they're able to get employed, and they're able to go home. They're able to get out of the institution. They're able to get off the government toll. And so I guess that is, at this moment, the greater good. If you're an administrator. As in the person who gets to make the decisions, so probably. So what they would do in a prefrontal lobotomy is they would still cut holes into the skull. And this time they would insert a scalpel on a long stick. <laughs> oh god! No, but it's like a long scalpel, and the thing is that 
Freeman is a neurologist. He's okay. not a surgeon. Right. And so he would stand back like two yards. Uh-huh. And he would watch where Dr. Watts, the neurosurgeon, was incising into the brain and kind of direct him. Now, the entire time, the patient is awake. Oh, no. I just had like a set of vision of that scene where Rob Lowe is eating his brains. Well, so they don't like remove the whole cap. It's just little holes. Okay. That's better, I guess. I guess. And so the whole time the neurologist is talking to the patient, Mm -hmm. trying to determine if they're hitting the right sides. And this is still done today. It's still done today. But what they were looking for was that change. They were looking for the disorientation. This is what they use as a yardstick. And he said, while it does not always occur on the operating table, if it is not present on the first post-operative day, it is likely that the operation will be a failure and the pre-operative symptoms will return. They wanted to make the patient start to have kind of this flat affect. Think like a robot. Okay. No emotion in their voice. Oh, this is the desired outcome. Right. Oh. And just the disorientation, like not being able to say like who you are or where you are. Like another case with a different neurosurgeon, he asks her, who am I? She says, William Randolph Hearst. Good answer. You know, he's like, good. <laughs> I can see it. Now he goes on to describe that this disorientation can last for a week and then they go into that convalescent period this may last but three weeks so it may last for a year or more oh okay depending That's a on wide the chronicity of the case range yeah. there okay the operative success in the previous behavior of the patient and during this period this patient is learning to readjust to living conditions with an altered personality and also bringing that altered personality into line with the accepted norms of his group it's not always an easy task either for the patient or for the family. But a satisfactory operation relieves the misery and leaves the patient with his intelligence not only intact, but freed from the bonds of linkage with the self. Freed from the bonds of self? Yes. He says that like it's a good thing. One man said of his wife, she's so full of don't give a damnness. And isn't that what we all want in a wife? The operation of prefrontal lobotomy would seem to produce its effects by divorcing imagination and affect as they relate to the self. This is inhumane. This is his writing. This I know. is literally his writing. This is not someone this writing is him about him selling it. it. Yes, this is him selling it. If we can just make them not be people anymore, they can perform the functions that are required of them. So he kind of concludes by saying. We do not insist upon the acceptance of this concept of elaboration of psychotic symptoms, but it's quite noteworthy that prefrontal lobotomy is followed by loss of interest, parentheses, affect, exclamation point, in the hallucinatory and delusional experiences, as well as in the bodily sensations, obsessions, and so on, even though these phenomena do persist for a time. As one very intelligent patient expressed it, the sensation is moved from the center of my attention to the periphery. Freeman also described this as a surgically induced childhood. Oh my god. If this asshole gets a Nobel Prize, I quit. Okay, spoilers, he doesn't. Okay, good. But he's the biggest fanboy of a Nobel Prize winner. So this was done all around the country. Not only in the VA, but the VA's records on it were found by the Wall Street Journal. It has a fantastic website on this. And so there's really good documentation of it. Because they have memos and letters and people writing about it and people discussing it. Like, what the fuck are we doing? Well, so one 
1949 Alabama VA Hospital wrote a six-page guide for families of lobotomized vets. Kind of what to expect and what to do. Before such an operation is performed, the doctors have tried every type of treatment possible, and in spite of treatment, your relative failed to improve enough for you to take him home. So that's all his fault? After a great deal of study, and with your consent, the prefrontal leucotomy was performed, and we now believe your relative is ready to go home. So Freeman rebranded as a lobotomy. Leucotomy is that original term. Mm -hmm. We do not expect you to have any trouble with him. You may find that he does not act as he did before. He got sick, or before the operation. People frequently say that he may start acting like a child, even silly. Like a child may not see the job that needs to be done. Give him something to do. He will probably complain, but if you are firm and kind, he will do as you suggest. He may have incontinence. Be patient. Bring him to the toilet as you would have a child. And they keep kind of referencing that. Oh my god. That kind of childlike behavior. And the final question, because they have this like long, frequently asked question section. Mm-hmm. When will he be well? The answer. We cannot answer this question. We cannot emphasize too greatly that you must be patient and that he must be kept busy. So without a doubt, the surgery was making patients easier to deal with. Making it easier to discharge patients. The families have still got a lot on their plates. Right. They were now calm. They no longer needed restraints. They were no longer suicidal. But they had all these other problems, too. They were separating the self from the rest of the brain. That is a hell of a party trick, but it's not medicine. Well, the VA doctors were aware that they were kind of trading the patient's personality for emotional stability. Jay Hoffman was a psychiatrist at the VA that wrote in 1949, these patients as a group remind me of a watch that has stopped. If one shakes it vigorously, the watch is apt to tick a few times, and the tick sounds like that of a watch in good repair, but it runs down almost immediately and stops. That's dismal. Now, Dr. Freeman and Watts considered about a third of their operations complete successes, in which the patient was able to lead a productive life, and they did have cases that turned out that way. Now, would they consider it a success only if they retained something of their personality, or was that... Okay, so it's just functional. It's functional. Okay. Another third were able to return home, but not support themselves. The final third were considered failures, according to Dr. Watts. Later in life, Dr. Watts offered kind of a blunt assessment of lobotomy's heyday. It's a brain damage operation. It changes the personality. We could predict relief and we could fairly accurately predict relief of certain symptoms like suicidal ideation, but we could not nearly as accurately predict what kind of person this was going to be. It seems like Watts has a little bit more of a compunction against this, like more of a conscience about it. We'll see that come into play. So, of course, other possible side effects could occur, such as seizures, incontinence, emotional outbursts, and, of course, sometimes death. But he was hired by the VA, the VA was seeing great success. Watts was or Freeman? They were, they were, they were a pair. pair. They were a pair. Because remember, Freeman was not a surgeon. Right. That's key. I mean, it seems like a really good plan to have a neurosurgeon do this as compared to someone who's not. But they were touring around the country. The VA was writing them constantly, the different hospitals, asking them to come, offering them huge sums of money, such as $50 a day as a consulting fee, which would be about $450. Just to come. Just to show up. And whenever they showed up, there was fanfare. Mm. 
and they were often profiled in the media, such as in 1941 in the Saturday Evening Post. They wrote, A world that once seemed the abode of misery, cruelty, and hate is now radiant with sunshine and kindness to them, describing lobotomy patients. Oh. Oh. And so there was some disapproval in the VA in 1948, Dr. Florence Powdermaker. Great name. I know. Chief VA Psych Education Section said, Has Dr. Freeman shown any disposition to modify his idea that lobotomy is useful for practically everything from delinquency to a pain in the neck? Unless this is so, I would prefer to have someone with less liberal ideas. This guy will give you a lobotomy for a hangnail, he says. So he was a zealot. He was not only like, hey, we found this thing and it works and I know that you need help and I know you're overloaded. So maybe this is something you can do for your worst cases. But he's like, it's a miracle cure. He was preaching the gospel. He might as well have been a traveling preacher because that's kind of what he was doing. Oh, my God. Preaching the gospel of lobotomies. So he saw the value of being able to do this and he wanted to do it quicker and easier and he came up with a great plan. He installs a drive through window somewhere? <laughs> he might as well have. He'd heard of something called a transorbital lobotomy. I don't think he should have heard of that. Now, he actually didn't invent it, but he did improve upon it. Mm, did he? No. So he wanted to take a new path into the cranium. He would take a patient and use electric shock to render them unconscious. He would then- so we're starting with electric shock. Yes. He would then use a hammer and drive an ice pick. Are you serious? And in the initial surgeries, it was literally an ice pick from his kitchen drawer. No. No, it wasn't. That's terrible. And he would hammer the ice pick above the eye into the cranium. He'd then kind of swivel it and wiggle it back and forth, kind of stir up the prefrontal cortex. No. Someone stop him. Now, he saw this as something that could be done easily without a surgeon. You could train anybody to do this. No, you can't. No, you can't. You cannot train anyone to do this. This is something that should not be done by anyone. Well, Dr. Watts agreed, and they broke up <gasps> because of this. The bromance was over? It was done. Good. Dr. Watts has some principles. But so Freeman would travel around with his ice pick and hammer, performing this on different patients. He would often keep the ice pick, like, in his pocket. No. <laughs> he wouldn't wear gloves or a mask, and there are lots of photos of this. <laughs> Him just kind of in shirt sleeves, hammering into somebody's brain. And if you remember, in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, they mentioned the bruising above his eyes. Mm-hmm. And that's what they're referencing. And he did this on both sides? Yes. And he's just, he's just driving around the country, just hammering people in the head and getting paid for it. Like you, this is like saying, like, this is a non-surgical procedure, strangling someone. Anyone could be trained to do it. Like, it just seems like assault. Right, and he was just, like, touting this for everybody, training people. He would do it for the VA. He would also do it for kind of anyone that paid for it. Mm. Sometimes his ice pick would break. Ah. And he eventually had some sturdier ice picks built. In the summer of 1952, Dr. Freeman operated on 225 people in 12 days during a lobotomy tour of West Virginia. This is according to his unpublished memoir. One patient in Iowa in 1951 died when the doctor chose an inopportune moment to stop for a photo and the surgical instrument penetrated too far into the patient's brain. He murdered someone. 
He murdered more than one person. But that, I mean, that's straight up. Like, you should, why can't we arrest this guy? Like, that's not, that's not medical malpractice. That's, that's beyond it. Right? If you stop for a photo and accidentally stab someone through their brain. Oh, yeah, definitely. Without a doubt. Like, that's criminal. But he was doing this in the VA. He was doing this in small little country hospitals. So he's basically invisible. The most famous invisible man. He was not invisible. He was. He loved his photo being taken. Obviously. He loved being in the paper. Obviously. If you stop a mid-lobotomy to smile for a camera, you like having your picture taken. So once before one invited visit to a VA hospital to perform ice pick lobotomies, a VA consultant, Francis Murphy, former army neurosurgeon, raised a few objections. Saying, so far as I know, Dr. Freeman has published no articles on the subject in the national literature, and as a result, I know nothing about the dangers and complications of the results, which is very true. He really did not follow these patients in any kind of scientific manner. I mean, he like, keep tabs on them sometimes, some of them. Maybe, if they wrote him. But there was no scientific acumen to it. Dr. Murphy was troubled that a doctor using the ice pick method couldn't see the area of the brain being cut. Quote, I'm surprised that you've written me for my approval of such a procedure, which departs so radically from standard surgical procedures, since you know how we have labored to throw every safeguard around the bottomies. So they were trying to put up these safeguards, some doctors were, but VAs kept calling Freeman and he kept going. It was efficient. I mean, like, if, if you're looking at it in a purely, like, moving merchandise, like, from a managerial standpoint, not a humanistic one, I can see, like, the guy that can do 12... Like, what did you say, 250 in 12 days or something like that? Yeah, 225, yeah. 225 in 12 days? Yeah, that's the guy you call if you just need to move merchandise. So between April 1st, 1947 and September 3rd, 1950, VA doctors lobotomized 1,464 veterans at 50 hospitals. Oh my, that's obscene. Sources of records from 22 of those hospitals list another 466 lobotomies performed outside that time period. Grand total of 1,930. I want to say that it's amazing that there were that many people who everything else had failed for. But then you think about the number of people coming home. No, but wait. Think about what the treatments were. Yeah, okay. True. You forgot. I just watched Let There Be Light and it looked like everything worked and everybody was happy, okay? (laughs) Well, if they could provide that kind of intensive treatment to this many people, there would have been a lot of efficacious. A lot more success, So the VA did try to determine whether the benefits outweighed the risks, and the risks were severe. Over 8% of lobotomized veterans died soon after the operation, according to a 1947 document. And does that document differentiate between leucotomy and ice pick lobotomy? Like, does it make any distinction, or is this just all lumped it's, together? It's all in general, but he went to where he was only doing this once Watts left him. Okay, because that's all he could do. Right, One hospital even reported a 15% fatality rate. So they even did a kind of real scientific placebo test in 1953 with a neurosurgeon in Oregon that, you know, would cut holes in the skulls of four mentally ill veterans and didn't touch their brains and then compared that to lobotomized patients. And the surgeons reported that none showed even the slightest improvement. By the mid-50s, the VA finished a five-year study of 373 veterans. Half were given lobotomies, and the rest were controls. But the thing is, this is where things get tricky. Because by the end of the study, many of the test subjects were all taking a new medication. Mm. 
something called Thorazine. Okay. Thorazine is the first real antipsychotic medication. But it's still used today. It's still around, right? Yeah, it's like a secondary drug. Okay. And it's used a lot in, in third world countries and things like that. It's, it's still effective. It has a lot of side effects. Yeah. So they use newer stuff. As many side effects as lobotomies? Uh, no. Okay. But with the invention of antipsychotics, Dr. Freeman's star began to fade. So when Thorazine came out, it was revolutionary. So he's cursing it. Oh, he was not happy. And one of the ads for it when it came out, I thought was fantastic. It says, when the patient lashes out against them, quote, Thorazine quickly puts an end to this violent outburst. Oh, well, handy. Thorazine is especially effective when the psychotic episode is triggered by delusions or hallucinations. At the outset of treatment, Thorazine's combination of antipsychotic and sedative effects provides both emotional and physical calming. Assaultive or destructive behavior is rapidly controlled. As therapy continues, the initial sedative effects gradually disappear, but the antipsychotic effects continue, helping to dispel or modify delusions, hallucinations, and confusion while keeping the patient calm and approachable. And so this... And this is just the ad copy? Oh, that's the ad copy, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'll definitely be posting that. But now prior to Thorazine coming out and the literal 180 change in psychiatric medicine, we had some 40,000 Americans that underwent lobotomies. Oh my God. Peaking at 5,000 annually in 1949. Hundreds of people volunteering to have it done twice. But with the invention and the appropriate use of Thorazine, and with the exposés about lobotomies and the horror stories coming out, the public began to see it as mutilation and not a miracle. Fair. And you see that in Ken Casey's novel, When Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. So Walter Freeman never gave up on this. He left Washington and began traveling the back roads performing lobotomies. Oh my god, so he has a mobile lobotomy unit? He's just driving around? What, is he doing it in the back of his van? Uh, back rooms of hospitals. Okay, okay. <laughs> now he died in 1972. He performed his last two operations on a single day in 1967. One patient, quote, has done well, he wrote. The other, a woman who did two previous lobotomies by Freeman, died of a hemorrhage three days later. These were the last lobotomies done in the United States. He hung on, didn't he? He did. And he was like a true believer. He wanted to believe that this was helping people. And his son's on board, too. <laughs> so he and his son had fully drank the Kool-Aid. Well, his son wasn't doing it or anything. Oh, okay. Yeah. But he, you know, kind of testifies to his father's good nature. Recounting like one episode where Freeman showed up at a medical conference in the 60s. He'd been completely... Discredited. Yeah, by yeah. this time. And he had a large box of Christmas cards from grateful patients and families that he dumped out on the table to try to prove, prove that he'd helped people. Yeah, a third of them. <laughs> but he did kind of keep correspondence with some patients, and especially their families, who thought that they'd really, he'd really helped them. He was so one to prove that he'd produced real and lasting improvements in people, that he hadn't butchered the vulnerable and the sick. That's going to be really hard to do when there is a factual basis for the claim that you've butchered the vulnerable and the sick. 
Well, most lobotomy patients, two-thirds by most accounts, remained institutionalized. So again, about a third could leave the asylum. But he had those few patients that did well, and he used them as the case studies, such as like an aircraft pilot that could now fly. (laughs) Not really fly. (laughs) Did he turn into a little horse? No. Like a violinist or a psychiatrist that could return to their work. I mean, he's literally firing shots in the dark. Like, he has no idea what's going to happen. No. And so whenever Helen Mortensen, the patient that died on the table, uh, whenever the last lobotomy, the patient that died on the table, occurred, he was stripped of his medical license. Good. Took a lot, huh? (laughs) Now, one psychiatrist that worked at the VA in the 50s said, you couldn't help but have the feeling that the medical community was impotent at that point. He recalls wards full of soldiers haunted by nightmares and flashbacks and says, we were prone to try anything. In looking at all these studies, they were able to conclude this does not work on schizophrenic patients. They were trying it on schizophrenic patients? They were doing it on everybody. On everybody. Right, for a hangnail, this man would do it. But why didn't it work on schizophrenic patients? Is it in a different spot? It kind of is that way. Lobotomy alters that emotional state. Not your cognitive abilities. And not your perceptual. And so schizophrenia is a disorder of thought. Mm-hmm. Not of sight and sound, but of mind. <laughs> no. <laughs> yes. So, you know, the question that one doctor asked is, was it right to authorize a lobotomy to make an argumentative person a quiet one? Or to stop behaviors repugnant to everyone? Everyone that is except for the patient. And it survived so long because Freeman was such an advocate for it. He was preaching the gospel. He looked the part of the healer, he acted that way, and he had the stories to prove it and the Christmas cards as well. You know, I can kind of forgive the people who are drowning at the VA. I can kind of forgive them for can you? For, for saying, God, there has to be something because you, you can't do anything. You know, you're comp- like they, that feeling that he said of impotence, of feeling like these people are dying and there's nothing we can do to help them. They're dying. They're miserable. They're literally reliving the war every day. What do we do? Oh, my God. What do we do? But there was just no science to prove it. They jumped headlong into it without any sort of evidence. Yeah. And I understand that. And I think it's wrong. And I I do find it repugnant that it happened. That's not what I'm saying. But you can you can understand the pressure and you can understand like where they're coming from, where it's like they are living in hell. How do we help them? I can. And it comes to that question. It's like, do we try something or do nothing? But then it comes to that other part of the question. Our job is to do no harm as physicians. And even Walter Freeman in his initial selling of it Mm -hmm. very clearly states, this is causing harm. These are not the same people when it's done. But those people are already lost in a way. Whenever I got to the end of this and the people they were doing it on, That argument loses weight. No, and that's what I was going to say, is I can kind of understand what was happening at the VA. I can understand how it it gained traction in that moment of desperation. But it did become just a cure-all. And it was happening, like, they'd go. he was going to people's doors and knocking and be like, know anyone who's difficult or kind of a pain in the ass? No, he would do it in hotel rooms. Want me to zap their personality for you? Yeah, And it became just this... This uh, miracle elixir. I mean, he was the ultimate charlatan. He was the ultimate quack by the end of it. He was. I mean, just absolutely everything you could think of as, you know, someone like selling the ultimate snake oil salesman. He's like, oh, know anyone who's, you know, 
a little neurotic, a little depressed? Your wife get on your nerves sometimes? At least snake oil was like just alcohol and morphine. <laughs> Which actually did make you feel good. I'm drinking that right now. <laughs> if you'd like to buy a snake oil, just a story, you can go to the website. We can't ship across state lines. Actually, we can't ship it all. Just come over and drink with us. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, like, I, I mean, I can kind of forgive the VA personnel. I cannot so much forgive Freeman. And so with the rise of psychiatric medication, you do start to see a big change in how we are trying to help people with mental illness. So Thorazine represents that shift. It is that moment. It is the moment. It is the milestone. It's the flip. And so as asylums are starting to lose any sort of semblance of acceptance in the 60s, you start to see a push for community mental health centers. Mm -hmm. And this starts kind of in the 50s, but really the 60s is when it takes hold. And their goals are for prevention, early identification, treatment with psychiatry, following that psychodynamic model, and also for follow-up care for patients that had been institutionalized or hospitalized. And these were all kind of Mm state-funded. And they got funding at first because of the shift and because of the excitement Mm-hmm. And it's also like these people are, you can send these people home, which means they're in the community, which means they need someone to look after them, right? Right. And if they could treat them in this way, also, it was a lot cheaper than an institution. Right. Outpatient is always less expensive than inpatient. Right. And these are things that affected policy decisions, mm-hmm. without a doubt. In 1961, the Joint Commission on Mental Illness and Health stated that These community mental health centers are a main line of defense in reducing the need of many persons with major mental illness for prolonged or repeated hospitalizations. And then, in 1963, JFK took these kind of recommendations at heart and, at a speech to Congress, called for a bold new approach, saying from the earliest days of the public health service to the latest research of the National Institute of Health, the government has recognized its responsibilities to assist, stimulate, and channel public energies in attacking health problems. Infectious epidemics are now under control. Most of the major diseases of the body are beginning to give ground in man's increasing struggle to find their cause and cure. But the public understanding treatment and prevention of mental disabilities have not made comparable progress since the earliest days of modern history. This situation has been tolerated far too long. It has troubled our national conscience, but only as a problem unpleasant to mention, easy to postpone, and despairing of solution. Okay, two things. Did JFK use a speechwriter? Because that is amazing. All of his speeches are amazing. That is amazing. He ends it with saying, we must promote to the best of our ability and by all possible and appropriate means the mental and physical health of our citizens. This is the first time an American president is standing up on a stage calling for new legislation on mental health and illness. I mean, there was some mental health legislation prior, but not this kind of call. So, you know, there's another Kennedy in Congress right now. Yes, he looks nothing like the Kennedys. Are you in serious? My opinion. I guess it's the red hair that throws me. JFK had red hair. It's black and white. <laughs> I find that delightful. Uh- Drink your snake oil. You find me hilarious. <laughs> but no, I, I actually watched him give a speech in Congress when, when they were considering the repeal of the Affordable Care Act. And he spoke at length about the importance of continuing care for mental illness. 
And so this is really a family legacy for the Kennedys. This is something that's very deeply entrenched in that family. Right. I mean, this is this is the last bill he signed. The, the last, last bill one. JFK signed before he was assassinated? Yes. And so he wants to make sure that our mental health facilities and treatment centers are moving forward in pace with more physiological medicine. Yeah, he wanted to build 1,500 community health centers for mental illness. How did he ever get things done? I mean, he was good looking. Maybe that was it. (laughs) So maybe the connection between the Kennedys, these generations of Kennedys we've had in government, our American dynasty, and their commitment to the cause of mental health is not so difficult to trace. They have a very personal connection to the issue. And it begins with the birth of Rosemary Kennedy who was the third child of Rose and Joe Kennedy. This is JFK's sister. Yes, his little sister. She was the third child born. Joe Jr. and Jack were the only two around. And she was born on September 13th of 1918 in Boston. And according to Barbara Gibson, who was a personal secretary for Rose Kennedy, her birth was very difficult. Rosemary was born at the height of the Spanish influenza epidemic. And so the doctors in Boston were white a little busy a little busy busy. but her mother had elected to have a home birth as she had with the previous two children and also because going to the hospitals where all the people had the spanish influenza not the best idea also they could afford a a doctor to come to the house and rose would tell her secretary barbara over and over again that nurses that attended to her while she was in labor had to halt the progress of labor until the doctor arrived. She would go on to say that the doctor was not immediately available and the nurse, even though she had been trained in how to deliver babies and was fully capable of doing it herself. Oh yeah. Most L and D nurses could deliver a baby. mm -hmm, Tried to stop her from giving birth and ordered that she hold her legs together tightly and then actually held the baby's head in the birth canal for two hours while waiting for the doctor to arrive. Speaking of unethical. Yes. Because the doctor wouldn't have been able to be paid, you understand. Oh, well, that makes sense. Never mind. You're a terrible human. Hey, you want to check out my ice pick? So the doctor's name was Dr. Good. Misnomer. His first name was Feel. But yes, he eventually arrived and did deliver Rosemary. And as she grew into toddlerhood, Rose noticed that she was, quote, not like the others. And from the earliest days... Of her life, her mom had noted that she rarely cried, but she really kind of put that up to, well, the other two are boys, and she's a girl, so maybe that explains the difference in temperament. Like, she's just tough. Mm-hmm. But accounts claim that she was kind of unathletic, and that she reached developmental milestones later than the others, and this was noted in Rose's meticulous record-keeping. Rose was a very bright woman. She said that she took on mothering as she would any career. She was very disappointed that she had not been allowed to pursue a career, and so she went at this with some level of vigor. She did all right. She certainly was an efficient producer of children, and it's also said that she had a very difficult time learning to read and write. In Rose Kennedy's memoir, Times to Remember, she wrote, She was slow in everything, and some things she seemed unable to learn how to do or do well with consistency. When she was old enough for childish sports... I noticed, for instance, that she couldn't steer her sled. And when she was old enough to learn a little reading and writing, the letters and the words were extremely difficult for her. And instead of writing them left to right on the page, she wrote in the opposite direction. And this was very concerning to the Kennedys, because they were a very ambitious family. 
and they intended for all of their children to be perfect. And Joe was not dealing with this so well. Joe was very, very concerned by Rosemary's apparent lack of academic progress and promise. And so around 1926, he went to the head of the psychology department at Harvard, and they conducted a mental faculty test on Rosie and diagnosed her as mentally retarded and suggested institutionalization. Oh, God. Rose was deeply shocked and said, My first reaction was shock and surprise. Like all mothers, I had prayed my child would be normal and healthy. I had to endure the anguish of every mother who learns her child will have to face the world with a devastating handicap. And she was given a Binet intelligence test before first grade, as Massachusetts state law required, and she scored between 60 and 70. That's really low. Yes. And she also had this very lackadaisical temperament, which was a huge outlier in the Kennedy family. I mean, these are the Kennedys. They're all incredibly driven, outgoing, ambitious people. At age 11, she was sent to a school in Pennsylvania for intellectually challenged students, and she would change schools every two years, either because the educators were unable to deal with her disabilities and mood swings, or because her parents hoped that a change in scenery might prove beneficial. When she was 13, she began to attend a Catholic school in Rhode Island, where she was taught in a room that was separated from all other students, all by herself. And eventually, you know, they moved her again, but the Kennedys donated a tennis court for the school's trouble. Oh, well, that was nice. Of course it was a tennis court. (laughs) And when she was a teenager, she wrote, To her father, I would do anything to make you happy. Her father, Joe, often described her as suffering from, quote, backwardness. She had the writing skills of a 10-year-old around the time that she was 15, but she appeared normal. She expressed great amounts of joy and was very poised and sociable. Now, whenever they traveled or went out in public, her siblings were tasked with looking after her. And they were very understanding, but they were also children Rosemary was strikingly beautiful, and it's said that her brothers were often required to fend off suitors. And she was very close to her two older brothers, Joe and Jack, and they appeared to dote on Rosemary. Joe Jr. had some peculiar ideas. He went to Germany on a post-Harvard trip in 1934, and he showed little sympathy for others with disabilities. In a letter that he wrote to his father, he praised Hitler's sterilization policy as, quote, a great thing that will quote, do away with many disgusting specimens of men. Now, Rose spent the years of 1938 through 1940 in Great Britain because her father was the American ambassador to Great Britain, and she was presented to King George VI and Queen Elizabeth. Rosemary was radiant. She'd practiced her curtsy for hours at the Vicani School of Dancing near Harrods, and she and her sister Kathleen went to be presented together, and they curtsied perfectly. But then Rosemary was turning right, and she tripped, but she did not fall. And Rose never mentioned the incident again. However, war broke out, and she was eventually sent back to Massachusetts, which was unfortunate because she was really thriving in Britain. She had even taken up reading to children at a Montessori school in Hertfordshire. She loved children. On her return to Massachusetts, she regressed, experiencing seizures and very violent tantrums, and she would often hit or hurt those around her. But Gerald O'Brien, a professor of social work at Southern Illinois University in Edwardsville, spent some serious time researching Rosemary's life. And he says, I am not convinced that she was mentally disabled. Back then, mental retardation was not a clear category, and it wasn't gauged in any accurate way. 
Her siblings included Joe Jr., John, Bobby, Eunice, Patricia, Teddy, and Jean. And her other siblings spent a great deal of time in the public eye. But Rosemary's time being available to her rapt public came and went quite quickly. People assumed that she led a charmed life, but the older she grew, the more embarrassed her parents became of her. And as a sibling, Rosemary was defined by her disability to the others. But it led the Kennedys to do a great deal of charitable work that have greatly benefited generations of Americans. For example, her sister Eunice, Eunice Kennedy, who would later become Eunice Kennedy Shriver, founded the Special Olympics. And in her 1962 interview about her sister's condition, is credited with changing the way, or maybe marking a turning point, in the way that mental defect or mental illness was viewed in society. Eventually, Eunice would lobby JFK to establish National Institute of Child Health and Human Development. And later, she actually took, took over responsibility for caring for Rosemary. The youngest family member, Ted, as a senator, would take up the cause and eventually sponsored bills like the groundbreaking Americans with Disabilities Act. Now, some accounts state that Rosemary's mental condition began deteriorating quite sharply around 1939. There are stories of her smashing objects and even kicking her grandfather. But these outbursts of anger and bouts of depression could have been normal responses to feeling out of step or rejected by her family. And it might have been that her mental capacity dictated the ways in which she found to respond to the stress. Her father, who was very keen on continuing his political career and very ambitious on behalf of the family's sons, really began to see her behavior as a threat. Kate Clifford Larson, who wrote a book, The Hidden Kennedy Daughter, noted that it's very possible to see Rose and Joe in a dreadful light, prepared to sacrifice their daughter for their son's political careers. In 1941, Rosemary was living in a convent school in Washington, D.C., and she began sneaking out at night. The nuns were very worried that she might be picking up men and that she, and this is a quote, could become pregnant or diseased. Lawrence Lerner, a family biographer, says this. Larson writes that at 20, she was a picturesque young woman, a snow princess with flushed cheeks, gleaming smile, plump figure, and a sweetly ingratiating manner to almost everyone she met. And she also notes that her parents found her sexuality dangerous. So, in 1941, Joe Sr., without telling Rose, had Rosemary lobotomized, administered by the fashionable but controversial Walter Freeman. But the operation went horribly wrong. Lemur says, Joe liked to cut away at a problem and move on. Now, he had first taken Rosemary to a Boston physician who refused to recommend lobotomy. Next, he conveyed her to a neurologist. Walter Freeman. Freeman did not recommend a lobotomy for mental retardation, but there are kind of two reasons that he might have gone forward with the procedure. He might have seen that there was some emotional disturbance in Rosemary, or Joe might have persuaded him to go forward. Yeah, so Freeman was known to like perform a lobotomy on anybody that paid him. <laughs> I do think it's interesting that they go out of the way to point out that it was not recommended for mental retardation. Right, because if you listen to everything we said like that really does not fit at all even if you're buying the science that freeman's selling it doesn't but like he there is definitely documentation of him performing a lobotomy on i can't remember how old he is like 11 12 year old 
more, something around there. God. Uh-uh. Yeah, because his mom begged him to, because he was just, you know, kind of not acting right. And of course, you know, she paid him a nice little chunk of cash, too. Mrs. Joe motherfucking Kennedy. He has a little more than a little chunk of cash. Mm-hmm. He bought him a fucking tennis court. <laughs> and there are no notes from the time, no contemporaneous notes, describing his procedure with Rosemary. But he did consult Watts, and Watts actually performed the procedure. Joe decided it would be best to do the procedure while Rose was traveling abroad. And later, Watts would tell a biographer of Joe Kennedy named Kessler. We went in through the top of the head. I think she was awake. She had had a mild tranquilizer. As Watts cut down into the brain tissue with an instrument like a butter knife, Kessler quotes Watts as saying, Freeman asked her to recite the Lord's Prayer or count backwards. We made an estimate of how far to cut based on how she responded. He talked to her, and he would say, that's enough. When Rosemary stopped singing God Bless America and became incoherent, they ceased their butchery. It was immediately clear that the operation had been a disaster. It stopped Rosemary's violent behavior, but left her with the mental capacity of a two-year-old. She became incontinent and was unable to speak intelligibly. Or Watts had cut too deeply. She did eventually regain the ability to walk, but permanently lost the initiative and mental capability she needed to live on her own. She had to have full-time assistance. That is not the only case like that. I have heard similar lobotomy cases, because they would get them to, like, sing or recite a poem or something like that. But, I mean, how... Come on, this is America's royal family, and this is the moment when they lose her. Really? When's this movie coming out? Oh, Emma Stone's going to be in it. I hope it gets made. It'll be really good. She's fantastic. Love her. Now, what happened to Rosemary had long been a puzzle for the Kennedy biographers. Most people believe that she simply suffered from mental retardation, and the lobotomy was done because she also suffered from emotional instability. Others, however, aren't sure that there was ever really, truly anything wrong with her. And if there was, it seems as likely that it may have been a learning disability coupled with major depression. Now, people raise this concern and point this out because they point out that as a young adult, Rosemary kept a coherent diary and sometimes traveled without an escort. She served as a hostess at family parties, visited the White House, and of course, there was that presentation before the King and Queen of England. And in 1939, she even attended the coronation of Pope Pius XII in Rome with her family. So about that kind of like mental disturbance, you know, she probably did have some learning deficiencies. And it probably was all related to birth trauma. She'd probably be diagnosed with cerebral palsy related to most likely like an anoxic brain injury from her mom being told to cross her legs and keep it all in. Doctors really did have a terrible reign over her life from the very beginning. So according to Robert Kessel, the biographer who wrote Sins of the Father, Joseph P. Kennedy, and the dynasty he founded, at the age of nine, Rosemary could compute 428 times 32, meaning her IQ was above 75. Interesting and disturbing. Yes. And Kessel actually argues that what followed after this lobotomy was one of the greatest cover-ups in medical history. No one in the family referred to her willingly, and Joe made donations to philanthropic causes for the developmentally disabled. Eunice founded the Special Olympics. So he's saying, like, they knew there was nothing wrong with her. But after her father had this lobotomy done in secret, 
they all decided to get together and cover it up. I don't think there wasn't something wrong with her, you know, in big quotes. Yeah. There was. There was something that now would be treated with speech therapy and tutors and a little extra time on a test. But they did all that. They did all that. But the moment so, when it came became untenable, when it became like a problem for the Kennedys was when she started sneaking out of the convent school and they were worried she would get uh, pregnant or, yeah. yeah. And that's, you know, like Larson says, they, her sexuality was dangerous. And Isn't it always? Is, and it's dad. It's dad that literally shuts that shit down. But again, the Kennedys really have done an incredible amount for the developmentally disabled and the mentally handicapped and the mentally ill. Eunice convinced the Joseph P. Kennedy Jr. Foundation to use its resources in efforts to help the mentally disabled. And she actually influenced Jack to create the Presidential Panel on Retardation. And in 1962, she started Camp Shriver that evolved into the Special Olympics. And in 1989, Anthony Shriver founded Best Buddies International, a global nonprofit organization that fosters one-to-one friendships between people with and without intellectual disabilities. And that's in addition to everything that JFK did as president, everything that Teddy did with the Americans with Disabilities Act, which he has a son who also who lost his leg to cancer. I didn't know that. And now his son is like in charge of the ADA advocacy group. And the ADA is just a massively successful bill. It's so important. And it was so long coming. So they've been advocates in this community. But then we get back to this very hazy question of what was wrong with her to begin with. Another biographer, Harvey Rockland, who wrote The Kennedys, A Chronological History, says before the lobotomy, she seemed healthy and attractive. She was never an obstacle or an embarrassment or anything very negative. It has always been my feeling that her mental condition was borderline and the lobotomy that her father Joe authorized really messed her up. And it's heartbreaking to consider that, because when she was 22, just a year before the procedure, she wrote, Darling Daddy, I am so fond of you, and I love you so very much. And she goes on to say that she would do anything to make him proud, and that her biggest fear was disappointing him. So you think this was all related to that just, like, Kennedy ideal of having kind of those perfect little children? Well, I mean, they had so many of them. You know, this is just the norm. If that is, if you have a thousand shining stars and you have one that's not, you must go, what's wrong with this one? You know, it's just just drawn into more stark contrast, maybe? I don't know. I do think that Joe felt she was unmanageable and that she could damage his career as well. The reputation. Well, and the the aspirations he held for his sons were considerable. And I I think that he worried that she was a political liability. And I, I think that may have factored into it. So Barbara Gibson, her secretary, and Ted Schwartz wrote, She was not the competition-oriented ideal of Kennedy womanhood. And he thought her sexuality was too intense and untempered by the moral strictures to which the other daughters had adhered. Joe destroyed a portion of her brain rather than, than risk what she might become if allowed to follow her own life path. So what ended up happening to her after this lobotomy? It was, it was a failure. It went in that category. The 30%. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Rosemary never regained full use of one of her arms, and she always walked with a limp. And initially, could, she could speak only a few words. She had to go through intensive physical therapy just to regain the ability to walk after the procedure. But Joe did not tell Rose about what happened. Oh, my God. He said that she'd gotten worse 
and that the doctors recommended institutionalization with no visitors. And she, he never told her where she was. And at first, she was sent to a private psychiatric institution in New York. She had a stroke in 1948. Now, the doctors at Craig House, where she was in New York, did not believe in psychoanalysis, but did support a little occupational therapy like woodworking or weaving and a douche of alternate and hot and cold water with warm, shallow baths. Oh, that's effective. Mm-hmm. But at this point, she was completely shut away as per Joe's instructions, she was not allowed to go out to see movies or go shopping like the other patients. She was kept completely confined to the institution. And she'd become lethargic and incontinent. And she could not talk and relied on grunting, screaming, and shrieking to communicate. This is a girl who kept a coherent diary just years before. Yeah, I mean, Freeman and Watts destroyed her. Absolutely. With her father's permission and enthusiastic pushing, I'm sure. And she did eventually relearn how to walk and brush her teeth in simple dressing. But then it was learned that she was sexually abused in Craig House. So she was sent to St. Coletta's School for Exceptional Children in Wisconsin in 1949. Now, Rose did not know where she was. And she would not see her again for 20 years. Joe had a stroke and he lost ability to speak, which seems fair. Apropos. Mm -hmm. And it was only when he became physically incapable of paying the bills and hiding them and keeping them from Rose did she learn where her daughter was and what had happened to her. And she went to meet her. And when Rose entered the room, Rosemary recoiled. But then she ran at her mother and began beating her mother's chest and crying and moaning. God, that must have been heartbreaking. I mean, this whole thing. No member of the family had visited her at all until 1958 when JFK secretly went to see her when he had a campaign stop in Wisconsin. He's running for president. She's locked in this place. The contrast is stark. But after Joe had a stroke in 1961 and JFK was inaugurated, the family did begin acknowledging Rosemary's mental retardation, but they never mentioned her lobotomy. Even in that landmark interview that Eunice gave, she always referred to her sister as retarded and insisted that she'd now found peace. Later, family described her as handicapped or retarded, which was apparently much less embarrassing than mentally ill and very much less embarrassing, much, much less embarrassing than the victim of a botched lobotomy. Especially in the 60s when this is starting to be seen as a, a mutilation. Because the blood's on their hands, you know. Yeah, he forced it. Up until the time that Joe had the stroke, he maintained that she was teaching mentally disabled children. She was off in Wisconsin teaching these poor, sweet, innocent, handicapped children. She's given her life to the cause. But when he has the stroke, Rose decides to reconnect, and eventually Rosemary is brought back into the fold. And she receives visits from her mother and sisters, and they would travel with her, and she eventually began to be brought for holiday at Cape Cod with the rest of the family. And this is a, by comparison, very happy time for her. Now, no one would know about her lobotomy until 1987. So for years and years, this is kept under wraps. There were two sides to the tragedy. First of all, she could have had a very normal, good life. She could have lived out a life surrounded by children, teaching, reading, something. Her family could have supported her. They had the means and she was, by all accounts, a very pleasant person to be around. Like, if there were just some treatment, if there was just someone that knew how to help. And so she never really fulfilled her potential. But there's another level to it with the family's denial of her condition. It was like the skeleton in the closet. It absolutely was. Lawrence Lemer called her lobotomy 
The Emotional Divide in the History of the Kennedy Family, an event of transcendent psychological importance. Unlike all the subsequent deaths and accidents, no mark of patriotism, heroism, daring, or even dread circumstances could be attached to this act. This is the sin. This is the stain. This is the mistake. On the Kennedy family. By trying to prevent something tarnishing their reputation. They do this. Joe Sr. does this. And she died at the age of 86 on January 7th of 2005 in Fort Atkinson, Wisconsin, in a hospital where she spent almost all of her adult life. And so Rosie's siblings did inquire to a nurse who was working in the hospital, helping people. What was really wrong with her? And the nun said, I believe she was like me. She had problems reading in school like I did. They called me a slow learner. So there's the potential. There's the thing she could have been doing. Yeah, it's so true. And without a doubt, JFK was inspired by his sister to really try to get these community mental health centers up and running. But the problem was that only half of the centers that he proposed were ever built. And the long-term funding of them was not insured. Yeah, we need to go fight in Vietnam and make more people need treatment. We can't possibly pay for those. And with the 60s and the adoption of Medicaid, this deinstitutionalization really accelerated. But there wasn't the... Infrastructure. It wasn't there. They weren't prepared for the severely mentally ill. And they didn't have the funding or the facilities to take care of them. By 1975, the number of state hospital residents declined from 550,000 in 1955 to less than 200,000. Sounds like a good thing. That's what JFK wanted. He wanted to cut it down by half. He said it in that speech. Mm -hmm. But he wanted to establish the network of care that would be there to take care of them. And it didn't happen. In 1981, Reagan passed the Omnibus Budget Reconciliation Act and cut the funding by a huge percentage. The community mental health centers were hit hard. And the changes in how the funding were distributed really affected them. Billions of dollars were eventually cut. Then after the 2008 recession, states were forced to cut over $4 billion in public mental health funding. And with the loss of this funding, that same question, that same question we've been asking since the founding of civilization, since we had things like Bedlam, is what are we going to do with these people? Are we going to treat them humanely? Are we going to chain them up and let people come and poke and prod at them? Hey, they can even pay and come do it. That's a great idea. Are we going to treat them with respect, like they're fellow humans, and help them in their severe time of need and treat this like it's any other organic illness? Unfortunately, the answer is chain them up. With this massive drop in funding, the mentally ill have really moved into the penal system. The National Alliance on Mental Illness says that 2 million people with mental illness are booked into jails each year. Nearly 15% of men and 30% of women booked into jails have a serious mental health condition. And how historian quoted the beginning of the first episode states that because community care is more fiction than a fact, what we've seen happening is a reversion to the kinds of conditions that provoked the reformers in the early 19th century to argue for the construction of asylums. It has really been something of a cruel joke. And also many people with mental illness end up homeless or in the care of family members that cannot take care of them. 
and do not have the mental health network that's needed. It's such a challenge. It is one of humanity's biggest questions. It is. And you still have a huge chunk of people that do not understand that mental illness is an illness, just like anything else. And with appropriate treatment and appropriate care, these people can be so much better. So for centuries, we've struggled with the idea of what do we do with them? Is it demons? Is it humors? something they did why are they broken why won't they just relent and live life like the rest of us and i think there's something about the confusion it inspires and in those treating the diseases i think there's something about the helplessness that it creates in men and women who want to be expert in their field i think there's this fundamental fear of that thin line we all balance on and knowing that madness is just right there knowing that any of us at any moment could lose this thing we call sanity that paralyzes us and leaves us asking that same question what do we do with them can we help them if we try if we try to lift that control panel and even if we can't at least we tried it's not just a story. No, that's not just a story. Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts. Society-13.com I like to listen.